This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Aaron Stark, and he is an author, and uh, he does other things as well, and he wrote a book called Disrupting Time, which tells a fascinating and controversial story uh, that we'll, we'll discuss. Um, and I'm going to give a little bit of context, Aaron, before we sort of introduce you. But this book is about an interesting period of time in the watch industry, the global watch industry in the late 19th century. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about some context there. But it talks about how the Swiss watch industry sort of got to where it is today. Obviously, there's a lot of other steps, but this is a crucial step in there actually being a modern-day uh, Swiss watch industry. So first of all, Aaron, hello. Hi, Ariel. So it's so great to have you here. Um, you know, our, our discussions go back uh, several years now. I think it was like 2016, actually. And when you first reached out to me, you were, um, you were a student. Remind me the auspices under which you, you reached out and what your interest in watches was at the time. Yeah, so I was in business school at the time when I connected with you, and I was uh, running a watch blog, or a, more of a hobby blog, called Watch Ponder. And so I did that for a couple of years, uh, mostly focusing on the intersection of business and watches, and kind of where those two overlap. So that was our first introductions, and wrote a couple of pieces for you. Yes, and you can go to a blog to watch and, and search for um, author Aaron Stark, and you'll see those. One of the things that I really liked about Watch Ponder was the fact that you were not approaching it from a perspective of, let me give you my thoughts on a particular watch or a brand, which was very, very common to do at the time with the sort of startup blogs. Um, because for the most part, you know, a blog to watch does that better, but you <laughs> came to it with a different approach where you had an interesting angle. And so I was like, you know, this is a voice that I only not only want to get to know, uh, but I would love to share with the audience. And in general, I think you'll agree that while the business of the watch industry is so fascinating and old, it's extraordinarily niche in its pursuit academically. Like, there's very few people who formally study the watch industry. There isn't really a school about it. Data is sparse. There's big missing pieces. Like, give a little bit of a context is like what the state is of watch industry academics. Yeah, so there are a few scholars out there, probably the two leading scholars that I'm familiar with uh, presently are Pierre Yves Danza and Alexis McCrossan. Of course, there are others as well, um, but most of the research done out there on the history of the watch industry is a lot of people doing it as hobbies, uh, devoting their time and doing it in an academic nature. And Mr. Dons has been on this show, um, so we we have, we have one of those voices here, um, and 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 now you're here. Why do you think that it is such a cottage industry? It's a big industry overall. Uh, there is a lot of history. There's a huge industry that focuses on the history of watches, but of the business that created and things like that. So much of it is left up to the brand's own marketing department, which, you know, doesn't seem to have a whole heck of a lot of credibility associated with it. So I think you have to look back at the history of the watch industry to really understand this. So if you kind of rewind back to 1876, which is kind of the epicenter of where I focus, the watch really plays a different role in society than it does today. In fact, we might consider the watch industry of that period to be much more similar to the tech industry of today. They were the ones leading in industrialization, uh, innovation, um, even how they treated workers. In fact, when we look at one of the companies that we'll talk about, the Waltham Watch Company, they literally were a very progressive company that led on equal work for equal pay and how they treated workers in ideal workplaces. So it's a completely different industry back then. And then we see it morph uh, into the present where we'd consider it more of a luxury jewelry industry, uh, not so much a tech industry. And so that's really led people away. So we might actually look at how many people research the tech industry today? And if we could superimpose that on history 150 years ago, that would be kind of how those two fields relate. So in other words, even though there has been watchmaking for a long time, the industry that created those watches is so distinct that there isn't sort of like one 
kind of continuous history. It's the history of watches as jewelry items. It's the history of watches as items for royalty. It's the history of watches as scientific instruments. It's the history of watches as mass-produced consumer goods. These had different sort of eras. Some of them overlapped a little bit, but they're, they're all very distinct is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's these chapters. And in fact, I'd specify in the prologue of my book, like I am only focusing on this one chapter. Um, and so when you break it up, you really have to look at it as these discrete chapters. And obviously the industry of today wouldn't exist without those individual chapters in between. But you can't necessarily say each one of those chapters l- directly leads to the watch industry today. They're, you have to take them in discrete chunks. The, the next and final question before we start talking about the book and the story is about how to do research. I've had so many people reach out to me over the years, many of them students, who have a genuine interest in understanding the watch industry of today and learning some history. And all of them sort of find that, like, it's very difficult to find information. There aren't really good resources If you sort of crawl down the rabbit hole even more, you recognize you'll have to go to Europe and read um, in in French usually or other languages, German, uh, to get information because it's just not going to be in English or it's not digitized. Explain the process of doing research. Um, I know for you it's only one era, but where do people find this type of information to even come to these conclusions? Yeah, so I think, you know, focusing on, depending on if you're kind of in the archival era or you're in the modern era, um, as you mentioned, there's there's kind of a control there. What, what you see as um, might be marketing materials, what you see might actually be articles written by people who are hobbyists. Um, and so you kind of have to be able to dig through to find the, the good stuff that is uh, reliable information. In fact, in the course of my research, I use a lot of, I primarily use original sources or primary sources from the 19th century, but I also use a lot of secondary sources to see what other people view. And and you'll find that a lot of secondary sources will cite other secondary sources and you never really trace back to a primary source. So at some point that information came to prominence, but where do you find it? Uh, And so I'll give you an example. Um, There in the watch industry, and especially among Waltham watch enthusiasts, you'll hear this story that Henry Ford got the idea for the assembly line from the Waltham watch company. Well, when you look in sources, you you won't find that anywhere. You'll find a lot of watch sources that'll cite that, but there's no primary source that actually shows that. I actually do bring that anecdote into the book to show how much Waltham was technologically advanced. The only place I was able to find any mention of it in what we'd consider a source was actually an interview from Henry Ford II, who was Ford's grandson, uh, in the 1950s, where he says, you know, my, my grandfather got the inspiration for the assembly line by visiting the Waltham Watch Company and seeing the watches go down in the assembly line. He says, I... You know, there's many other stories I've heard, but this is the one I've always been told. So that's the one I believe to be the truth. So here we have like, that is like literally the only thing you're going to find as an actual source. Um, And so it makes it more difficult to be able to prove that some of these things actually happened and are not just hearsay. But as far as resources, there's some great archival resources. But as you mentioned, a lot of them are in Switzerland or in France. Uh, as far as U.S. companies or some of the ones I ended up using are, for example, at Baker Library at Harvard Business School, you'll find all of Waltham's records, um, which are fascinating. It is boxes upon boxes of original uh, annual reports written by their treasurer or what we'd call a CEO now, uh, cool. who every year lays out his strategic guidance for the company. And we can actually see it and trace it and we can actually trace their financials. And so it's really cool to be able to compare those. Um, and so one of the things I actually do in the book is take their financial information and conduct some modern financial analysis on it to see where do we see, if this were a company being evaluated today, where, where do we see kind of like the uh, it starting to have its downfall? Interesting. Yeah. I want to I corroborate what you're saying about sort of word of mouth and sure. um, things not having a lot of, you know, written access in my time, uh, you know, 15 years of being, my goal was not to be an academic, but I am curious. And like you, I sort of want to get as much information as possible. I had to have a lot of conversations with people often um, in Europe uh, who are not native English speakers who would tell me stories. And what you find is that much of the documentation which exists 
is sort of just what happened. This order was made. This product was made. But there's so little about motivations or why. The human element, what were people trying to do with this? You know, what was the conversation around it? Any of that context is very rarely ever written down. There's no sort of formal business reasons often for doing so. There wasn't an industry that was sort of like covering it. There wasn't like a gossip column about the watch industry in, you know, 1930, at least not that I know of. It was <laughs> really related to those personal relationships. And like you said, there was a lot of times where watchmaking was directly related to, um, you know, high, uh, you know, high science military, uh, or they were working with something that was, you know, state-of-the-art. So a lot of secrecy was going on, and we have to look through a lot of shadows to try to understand, again, some of that human motivation. And I'm curious to know from your perspective how important that was for you, because I get curious as to, like, why were they trying to do this, or why was that such a big deal? Uh, was it easy for you to find human motivation, or like me, did you have to sort of try to piece it together and imagine what it must have been like for them. No, I think like with, um, especially like the, this main character, Jacques David, um, and he, he's kind of a, a proxy, if you will, for the Swiss watchmakers of 1876. These are people who, um, their industry was a cottage industry. They were not wealthy. Uh, they, most of these people literally would make parts for watches just to get the money to put it back into their land. And so they choose to transform, not because they were like, you know, we want to go make a luxury watch industry. They choose to transform because they, they literally don't have any other options. And so you see this human story coming through of these people who are willing to embrace societal change, industry change, uh, and integrate how they structure their whole economy because they have to, and they want to be successful. And it, it's, it's a really cool story. And even, uh, David is, is a leader. He's the one who has the vision, knows how to put it into action and then motivates people to begin moving towards it. And so I think that's like a really cool thing that you see in this history. That's not really documented right. in a whole lot of places. So let's, let's sort of go into the story. Um, the, the title of the book is Disrupting Time. You'll give the, the full title with the subtitle, but let's start with this lead character, Mr. Jacques David, who is he? Let's we'll talk about what he does, but who is he? How does he sort of end up in the story? And then where does where does the book start? Yeah, so we probably the best place to start is with this character, uh, Theophilus Greeby, who is a he was a watchmaker, a Swiss watchmaker who worked in America for many years and he returns back to Switzerland uh in you know, 1875, 1876. And the Swiss asked him to go back to be a judge at the Centennial Exhibition uh, in Philadelphia. So it was what, the Great World's Fair celebrating America's first 100 years. And Greeby goes there as a judge. And he is completely overwhelmed with what he sees. He sees the Waltham Watch Company's exhibit, uh, which is this novel assembly line exhibit that displays a few pieces and parts of a watch. And he's, he's actually really fascinated with this thing called the automatic screw making machine, uh, which I've actually had a chance to see one of these in operation. There's a collector who still has one that operates and it's really cool. It produces these tiny little watch screws and it can produce one in every five seconds. And so Greeby is like completely overwhelmed. He knows that one of these machines uh, can literally produce eight to 10 times more than a single oh, cool. person. Right, right, and right. Much less like a single operator who doesn't really know anything about watchmaking can operate 10 of these things at a time. So he knows that there is like, they are completely overwhelmed. So he writes back to Switzerland in, in June. He says, hey, you know, we are completely overwhelmed. And the Society of Jura Industries, which is a, a collective group of watchmakers that are there to promote their, um, the collective of watchmakers, they send Jacques David, they select him. He's an engineer. He's a young engineer. He's an early advocate of mechanized production. And they send him over to America. Who's, who's they exactly? Yeah. So Society of Jura Industries is this newly formed, um, we might think of it as like uh, when you have industry associations, it's an industry association. Some type of, of trade body? Yeah. Trade body of watchmakers in the uh, Jura region. And they it's called Society of Jura Industries. Um, and they select Jacques David and he goes over there in August and meets up with Greeby 
to, they have this, this direction from the society to conduct a quote, you know, detailed study of American watch companies and to collect everything they can on financials, operations, and basically how these companies operate. So was this, was this a common thing to do? I mean, this sounds pretty like he's going to go out for a long time. He's given a bunch of money and resources. He's supposed to send back information. Like, tell me more about the parameters because this is like, this is a major undertaking because to, to do this requires, I don't know, a lot of resources or a lot of ingenuity. Like, I've just tried to explain like what kind of a situation were they setting up here and how routine was this? Yeah, so I think as a point of context, what we would call industrial espionage was pretty common back then. Um, in the course of my research, I found um, just looking in, in historical databases, you don't really see the term industrial espionage coming to even really into the lexicon until around World War I. Uh, you, you see it come into a common usage in uh, the 1960s. So if you were to go back and ask David and Greeby, you know, about the term industrial espionage, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Um, so they um, have to figure out how to get all this information. And so a lot of people kind of this Was conventional- this criminal? Because today no. <laughs> you associate the term espionage with a crime. Yeah. So at the time, you know, this would have been, you know, considered fair game. It was fairly common in the um, industrial era of the Industrial Revolution, Victorian times. Okay. Did the U.S. do this to Switzerland? Like, had Switzerland been the subject of this? So Switzerland hadn't, but ironically, um, so Waltham, who uh, is, serves as kind of the primary victim here, they, Waltham, Massachusetts, you have um, Francis Cabot Lowell's mills were originally in Boston or in Waltham. And Francis Cabot Lowell actually steals trade secrets from the English on how to make textiles. Uh, and he brings that back to America and that serves as the basis for okay. American textiles. So, so one man, Jacques David, is sent uh, by a consortium of watchmaking interests in the Jura of Switzerland to the United States uh, to learn. And you're saying, you know, I haven't said the word yet, but essentially as a spy, uh, you said industrial espionage. He's an agent designed to collect information and presumably is not going to be extremely forthright with the Americans about what his objectives are. Yeah. So he he joins Greeby. Actually, David and Greeby both get the charge. So you okay. could consider them both uh, in, in this together. Okay. Um, and the two people. Which again, in 1870-something, in, in, in uh, you assume one of them was going to die anyways, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So they link up at the Centennial Exhibition. And, the, and as, a, as kind of a point of context, you know, David's report that he ends up writing is not, is not secret that it's like there's a report, people have read it, you can find it, uh, you can read it. But the conventional narrative is that these, they go to the Centennial Exhibition and Waltham is, you know, freely and naively gives this information to the Swiss and David writes this really great report upon returning to Switzerland. Um, but we and find that information that is, here's how we have an automated or assembly line approach. Because like that's the question, like what exactly in that report was so valuable? Yeah. So the report actually, if you are ever just interested in, you know, how does a factory operate in the 1870s? Like it's a fascinating report. So David lays out everything from how they hire employees, how they fire employees, how they pay employees, how they pay dividends, how they manage their finances, how they manage innovation, how they um, patent things, how they design watches, how they, you know, design equipment, how they manage the equipment, how they maintain the equipment, you name it, it is wow. in this document. And this was uh, and just because he was flattering them and curious? Like, I just don't understand why Walton would share all this stuff. Yeah. So, like I said, that's the conventional narrative. Uh, and that is not what you'll find um, when you begin reading the report. So, the report gives a few initial indicators that David is likely not getting this from people giving it to him. He talks about protecting his sources. He talk, he um, requests that the report remain confidential. He talks about, you know, I need to make sure this thing doesn't get out because, you know, if an indiscretion occurred, this would be bad for the people that gave me um, this information. So David clearly knows that this information can't get out and he wants to protect these sources. But really, the real breakthrough that uh, I came across in my research was this letter that David writes from America in September 20th of 1876. And he's writing it back to the society in, um, in Switzerland. And David actually, in this letter, 
says, uh, quote, I sped through quickly and incognito and saw the poor arrangements I already knew about. And then he continues, I did not really have time to have a look or a good look around nor to ask questions, but we have inside sources and we shall soon have the information we want. Wow. So it sounds like he either had like accomplices and confederates, people he was paying off for friends. Maybe he was dressed up as like a delivery driver and just walked in the place a bunch of times. Like it could have been any of these things. Yeah. So kind of like looking at other uh, research on industrial espionage, it's most likely that he probably enters as a common worker. Um, His report notes quite a few details that only a keen observer uh, would would note. So, for oh, so example, like he, he would have been hired. No, so he so, actually I would mean, have worked there or, or snuck in the factory. I mean, he talks about speeding through quickly and incognito. So we would presume he's probably not hanging out there a whole lot, um, but at least going through at least one time. OK, I'm just saying like he theoretically could have been like, oh, this company services Waltham. They come each week to fix or clean this. I'll get a job at this company and it'll give me a regular reason to come by and people won't necessarily suspect me. Like they would go to this level of planning, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So obviously this letter gives us good insight for his collections, but probably like the most spurious thing that David mentions is he mentions getting, he, he basically says, we've had trouble working out the financial information but, you know, rest assured, we're getting help from this guy, Mr. W, who's the former director on the mechanical side. Um, and if you look at sources that will, you know, they'll say that none of David's sources have ever been found. David actually spills the beans in this letter. And Mr. W references this guy named Ambrose Webster, who in pocket watch uh, circles or people who are uh, enthusiasts, Ambrose Webster is kind of a legend. Uh, and so the fact that Ambrose Webster is I'm the one a name like that, you have to be, right? Yeah, yeah. He's the one that's actually giving David the information. And what's cool is I'm able to kind of trace out uh, what's this probable quid pro quo arrangement. So David says in this letter, he's like, I can't, you know, I can't at this point say that we should approach Webster to have him be part of our transformation, but we think he could be really valuable. And then is what we see in David's report is David goes back and tells all of his Swiss watchmaking friends like, hey, Webster owns this company and they make the best machines in America. You should go buy uh, watch machines from Webster. Well, is what we find out is Webster actually leaves Waltham in the summer of 1876, goes and joins a new venture in which they invest heavily. Uh, they basically go from like five employees or eight employees up to like 80 employees Uh, during this economic depression while all the other companies are basically at a pause. And so So the idea was you help Switzerland through espionage, but Switzerland will hire you. And in the long run, you'll make a bunch of money. Yeah. So you, you give us information, all the Swiss watchmakers, or I'll recommend you to all the Swiss watchmakers and they'll all come buy machines from you. And this is what we see. Okay. And that, and that, I guess in a cutthroat era could have been seen as a good deal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Webster, uh, there's an article that says, uh, in let's say 1892 article that says Webster by this point has basically visited every um, watch factory in Switzerland. Uh, so Webster clearly made out well from this arrangement. Interesting. What And this, what happened to him? Did he just make a bunch of money and do whatever? Did he make, pro- like, I'm, what I'm wondering is, did any of the Americans who were potentially enriched by this move to Switzerland and incorporate themselves in that culture, but their origins come from this? Not that I'm aware of. I'm sure there are. I just don't know uh, from my research. Okay. Because it would you don't really hear stories of that. You hear like, well, the Swiss person moved to this other country and that's their heritage, but it's not, it's not often that they were an American and they moved to Switzerland during this time when then there was this cooperation and then, you know, they just sort of like laid roots here. You just, I've just never heard that before. Yeah, no, I, I'm not familiar with one. You know, all you really have is is Hans Wilsdorf from Rolex, you know, who's the the famous non-Swiss guy that started an important brand and who, you know, German to England and then to Switzerland because he had to, because Switzerland was like a low-class place to make watches. <laughs> yeah. So he needed yeah. to live near the factories. But it's it's um it, not a lot of people seem to be excited to like go to Switzerland and lay down r- r- roots for much of this era. <laughs> Yeah. So during this era, it was definitely a poor country. And, you know, most of the watchmakers are, you know, the the farmers who made watch parts were living in in poverty. And there's 
uh, a lot of accounts of that, especially from like Americans visiting the region or there's a, a guy named Consul Byers, who's the American consul to Switzerland. And he was an author and writes a lot about what Switzerland was like at the time. And he talks a lot about just this almost poverty uh, at the time. So it didn't sound like a very glamorous place. When, you know, I don't know if this is outside the bounds of the research, but when did Switzerland start to become the rich country that we associate uh, it with today? Was just, was that, you know, World War II? Uh, I don't know about when we'd consider it kind of like this rise to wealth. Um, I could, I mean, we see this, the Swiss eventually kind of transition towards this luxury watch market Um and I don't know how well that correlates with it, but there, well, this I think begins. it started. I mean, look, the, I think the reemergence of the watch industry uh, related to the fact that Switzerland was this place where people would store their wealth. It became a, yeah. a bank for the world uh, for a variety of reasons. And so, when you had people coming to store wealth, Switzerland, I think, had access to an enormous amount of raw materials because there's a lot of gold sitting around, and you can afford a lot of stuff now because you're holding a lot of people's money. So they started to be able to, you know, make these things again, uh, and, and some of these factories got started uh, in, in slightly different ways. Uh, again, I don't know how all the pieces fit together, but again, it's Switzerland as the bank country, which is sort of what I'm thinking about, you know, the origins of that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm not familiar based on my uh, research kind of where that transition happens. Sure. Okay, no, that's fine. Okay, so let's let's go back and let's, again, go back to some dates and things like that and also some context. Sure. Um, we're talking about the late 19th century. Um, how long did this period take, right? Because part of the story is he's, you know, he's going to America, he's getting all these facts, and then you talked about someone, uh, Webster, who was selling these machines to America. This this required a, a period of years, and then obviously Switzerland industrializing itself. Um, how long is Mr. David related to all of this? And, you know... Uh, Again, talk a little bit of the trajectory. What did Switzerland do over time with all this information? Yeah, so David returns back in, I believe it's November of 1876. And he is one of uh, a few people that had attended the, the Centennial and wrote reports. Another um, prominent one is Edouard Fave Perret. And he writes an, a report that is commonly cited in watch uh, industry histories. And what is the Centennial exactly? The, oh, sorry, the Centennial Exhibition in America. So the 1876 World's Fair, if you will. So they okay. both return back from that um, and they write these reports. And so David, you can kind of think of him as like this young, he's like the young guy um, versus you have all the older, wiser people. Um, but David comes back and he has all this information and he knows what he's found. He knows that the industry has to do something or it will lead to their demise. And he writes this well, report. Well, why, why is it? That's a pretty strong conclusion to come to. It'll, it'll. If you, if you ignore this, it will lead to your demise. Like, why is that? Yeah. So the Swiss basically know um, at this time that they, uh, they, they know that the industry is doomed. So we kind of view. Uh, obviously, today we view Swiss watches as being um, luxury watches. They're the best made watches in the world. At in 1876, that was not the case. Um, there's a, uh, a couple um, articles I cite in the book talking about where um, newspapers will talk about Switzerland's unrivaled cheapness. And um, David even has a quote in his letter where he writes back and says, nobody wants Swiss watches. Nobody can sell them. Everyone's trying to do their best to get rid of them without any success. Um, and then right after the centennial. So basically at the centennial, Waltham wins this award for making the best luxury watches in the world. So they have these four watches that, uh, or it's three watches and, and, um, uh, they get tested and they're, they are viewed as the most accurate watches in the world above all Swiss watches. What was and, Switzerland doing so wrong? I mean, like, like, would this have been how maybe some people view like low cost, Far East manufacturing, like was Switzerland like just a crappy place? Like watchmaking is hard. And I'm just trying to understand why would a country that doesn't do these things very well do something as hard as watchmaking? Because they did it for a while. Like I, I'm just trying to understand here why, how they got so bad. Yeah. So there's, um, there, there's actually a good uh, 1870 article that talks about this devolution into poor quality. And so as if you kind of think about 1860 or the 1860s into 1870s, 
this is really the time where people are actually starting to care about time. So right coming out of the Civil War, you have Americans leaving the service. And, and during the war, they all want watches to be able to know what time it is. And so they're leaving the service and America starts this movement towards punctuality. And so America has this insatiable demand for watches. So by 1872, America's importing 366,000 Swiss watches every year. But then you also have the rise of the Waltham Watch Company, which for practical purposes begins business in 1857 uh, under Royal Robbins. And they begin this march upwards. By 1876, they're able to produce 100,000 watches a year. In the um, Swiss, in their effort to try and produce as many watches as they can, they begin producing really good watches, really bad watches. But Waltham has this inherent advantage of their using precision machine parts. So they're able to use better metals. In fact, Waltham even researches, they have metrology where they're figuring out what are the best parts to use. And a good example now, is this the balance. This all comes from arms manufacturing, right? Before they were doing watches, this part of the world was making weapons and things, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So a lot of kind of the inspiration for the idea of this really came from clocks. Originally, clocks were uh, mass produced. And then you also had the firearms industry that's mass producing. And so then that gets applied to watches. Okay. Um, and they're able to use the best metal. So, for example, a Waltham watch, whether you have the cheapest watch or the most expensive watch, they all use the same balance spring. And so Waltham's able to bring accuracy to a really cheap watch, but also to a really expensive watch. Um, versus in Switzerland, they have these people that are, for more or less, they are machining these hand these parts by hand. And so as you get a, when you want to, create a better watch with better materials, it now takes exponentially longer to form the parts and to make it work. And so you find that the cheap Swiss watches just break. And so it almost was kind of cheap, uh, treated like a trinket versus Waltham's cheap watches were considered reliable and were good enough for the average person. And so that's where we kind of get this bifurcation of Waltham and the Swiss. Hi, I'm Thomas Bayou, the founder of Bayou Watches. My family has been living in the heart of the Swiss Watch Valley for generations, but I'm the first one to put our name on the dial. Today, Bio is one of the best kept secrets here in Switzerland, adopted by many industry connoisseurs. When we release a 100% Swiss-made stunning tourbillon for under 5,000 US dollars, the biggest regional newspaper came to investigate to see if this was possible. It is. We currently offer five model families, and our prices start at 500 US dollars. I invite you to come and learn what industry experts know best. Authentic Swiss watchmaking. Visit BA111OD.com. So, so suddenly, some contingent in the Swiss watch industry re recognized that this entire industry is in the wrong direction. We're not really quite sure how it got so off track, but they just developed this horrible reputation. Uh, I used to hear somebody in Switzerland made a joke one time about like, they said there was this idea of like the drunk Swiss watchmaker that they had these like horrible reputations at the time for just like <laughs> not finishing things and just 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 not being reliable. Like that was like a thing they would say about it. Like that was a saying. Um, I, again, I don't know how it got there, but uh, something kicked them in the behind, and there was at least some contingent that said, "Hey, we can do better. Like we have all this set up. Why don't we actually start to compete on a world scale?" Um, and I guess that's what it was, right? Some level of ambition to save this industry rather than abandon it. Yeah. So, yep. As they go back, um, you get Faye Perrette and David both say like a quote from Faye Perrette is he says, you know, I personally had doubted this American competition, but now I've seen it and I felt it and I'm terrified by this danger to which our industry is exposed. And so they, they put this out there, but David even uh, a couple months into 1877, he writes a second report, which is much shorter and he basically says, like, I'm completely amazed, like, nobody cares. Like, there's this complete quietude. Like, why is everyone arguing with me? I'm telling you, I've seen it all, and you have to do something. It's just like today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you see David and um, Faith Brett, they're kind of like these two leading voices. Um, but I would say what separates them is, is Faith Brett is, he's kind of this encourager. He tells people, you know, we can do it. You know, he even uses the quote, um, all for one, one for all uh, in one of his writings um, versus you get David who's like, OK, here's exactly what you guys need to do. 
So David lays out this vision in his report, which we see really kind of trickle through into the modern watch industry. So the genius of what David suggests is he says, hey, I know if I suggest going to American factories, you guys aren't going to do it. So is what I recommend is that where we can gain efficiencies by bringing people into a factory, let's bring people into small factories. They don't have to be big. They can be small, but let's bring them together and we'll designate some common sizes of parts. Um, and then you'll each kind of like associate yourself with a quote unquote factory, but you can still make parts in your home if you want. But then these factories will then assemble the parts into movements. And then those movements will go to case maker and then we'll have case makers. And then those will finally go to a final producer who will put it all together. And then they'll put their name on the cover of the watch. And then they'll be responsible for its operation. Okay. Which so, is that very was, that, so that was David's plan. That was David's, that was David's vision for what all the watchmakers could and do. It's, it's, it's ambitious. It's a new thing. It makes sense, but that requires like a lot of planning and thinking and taking because it sounded like what they had before was a bunch of families who would try to do as much as possible. And there was these sort of like non-uniform ways of getting things made. Like it wasn't structured like some people did this, some people didn't do this, like to actually have a, um, you know, an assembly line, so to say, would just would just take a... a you know, years and years of effort trying to put stuff together. They were, he was trying to preserve the fact that they wanted to make parts in their, in their barn in the winter. But then rather than just doing whatever, like make one specific part, make a bunch of them, and then send them to this centralized facility that takes all these parts and all these things and puts them together and, and separates the good from the bad. And then the movement that comes as a result has some standards applied to it at least and can thus compete on the same level. Because one of the issues was that the non-standardization of parts meant that every single watch, in a sense, was really unique, and you couldn't just take a part from one another. So you couldn't really fix them unless it went back to that one family that did it. Um, and that was, you know, that was a huge, huge issue. So uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just trying to add more context here as to why yeah. this plan was interesting. No, you're absolutely right. And just on the, the Americans, actually, American jewelers actually referred to it as having to give the Swiss watches insurance because they would almost assuredly break and then a part would have to be formed for it versus, say, a Waltham part. They didn't have to or a Waltham watch. They didn't have to insure because they could literally just interchange the parts. So there was this huge advantage that Waltham had by having. Yeah, this interchangeable like the fact parts. that the store could fix their own watch by just replacing it was a huge deal because the Swiss watch industry, like you had to send this watch back to Switzerland for, for I don't know, years, <laughs> right? Like you have no idea where you're going to get it back and uh, that you can't run a business like that. Yeah, or just uh, the jeweler himself has to form a part which can take, you know, tons of labor. Or never work. If you don't have the right yeah, machine, exactly. you don't know how to do it. Yep, exactly. So, okay, so how did he finally get momentum in his direction? Because you said that everyone was ignoring him. Even though he was paid by these people to do it, what did it take for momentum to occur? And what did that actually look like? How did it get started? Yeah, so I think there was, you know, he benefited one from having other people kind of saying like, yes, what David is saying is true. Like, we have to do this. So there's a little bit of that, but I don't want to give the impression that, you know, everybody was just jumping on board. When we kind of look at the formation of factories, we see that it really kind of takes almost a whole generation before people are really embracing the whole factory concept. So you only start to have some people embracing it. Probably the earliest example um, was Longines. Um, and so Longines is one of the early factory examples. Omega is another good example of a large factory. Um, but we begin seeing these like small factories and most of these are, you know, factories of 20 people. They're not huge factories and they're only making parts. We might think of it like a modern computer manufacturing, so to speak, where it's, you know, you assemble a microchip from the microchip producer and the uh, keyboard from the keyboard producer and you put it all together. And so that's basically the system that's coming about. Um, but one of the things we actually see is a lot of the watchmaking centers, kind of like, say, for example, Bern, where we see Bern uh, serves as kind of a hub, um, that a lot of it had to do with these watchmakers that wanted to make factories had to go where there was higher densities of population that were willing to work in a factory. Um, and so David convinces a few of them to begin moving in this direction. Um, but one of the things that David does that is kind of a genius move is he 
He recommends that the Swiss emulate, not imitate American factories. So imitate would imply, you know, copy exactly, do just what they're doing. Emulate just strives to have the same outcome while doing it with a different method. So even like the machines the Swiss end up adopting are more versatile um, versions of American machines. And just kind of this um, disaggregated system of manufacturing actually ends up benefiting the Swiss because they're able to uh, quickly adapt to new innovation trends. Probably the biggest example being the wristwatch because they don't have huge sunk capital in giant factories that are powered by steam machines. Um, They are able to quickly adapt and to distribute these innovations throughout this wide network of small factories. So, is this the change that Switzerland had wanted, right? Like, did this end up making sense? Did it actually accomplish it? Did they end up competing with America? Because today, the American watch industry is small, and you keep hearing people say, like, wow, it would be really great if we could make watches again. Uh, it doesn't really compete on any major level. There are some companies that make watches that are owned in America. Um, but Switzerland is sort of really the top dog. I think what's interesting is not only that Switzerland uh, took this advice and became industrialized and started to get serious, but it has remained so relevant. And I think there's, of course, a lot of reasons why a watch industry can stay relevant in Switzerland um, and not in America, where things just happen a lot faster. But talk a little bit about context of what happened you know, immediately after this and sort of the decades afterwards, because I think that it's so interesting to understand how this story translated into what we have today. Yeah, so David and, and Faye Perret, they kind of both push the Swiss towards to make some strategic decisions that ultimately lead to Waltham's, what I would say, Waltham's demise, or at least put them on a trajectory towards eventual demise. And um, the, the first one is they come back and they say, there, there's no way we're going to win the American market. There's these high tariffs. The tariffs were like 25% on Swiss watches at the time. And they say the Americans basically got this low-cost market. They're popular there. We're just not going to win. So you see Switzerland mostly pull out of the American market. They still agree to sell luxury watches there, but you at the low-cost watches, they completely pull out. Uh, then they basically look to international markets, but because labor costs in Switzerland were so much cheaper than America, the Swiss are able to outcompete Waltham and the other American companies internationally. So you see the Swiss kind of capture all the international markets. So then this forces Waltham to look uh, domestically in America to try and continue their profitability. However, they have this competition from Elgin, who's their biggest competitor. And Waltham and Elgin basically enter this uh, price war to the bottom. And there's a lot of evidence of collusion between the two. They're price fixing. They're trying to do anything they can to maintain profitability. But just like you see in um, uh, behavioral economics with the, the prisoner's dilemma, uh, Waltham and Elgin are always um, defecting on each other and they're always undercutting. And they basically lead this price war to the bottom. The other interesting choice that David and Faith Perret push the Swiss towards is they say, hey, we have this army of artists that know how to make beautiful watches. Let's focus on that uh, because we can actually win in that market. Is what's interesting about this move to the luxury market is Waltham had actually won the award for making the most accurate watches in the world, uh, hi- most highly adjusted, what we'd call luxury watch today. Uh, but Waltham doesn't see that as the future of the market. They see the future of the market as the mass-produced, uh, middle-income watch to people that, you know, the average consumer. So Waltham basically ignores the luxury market and says, I'm not going to focus there. All their advertising goes towards this middle-class consumer. And so the, they basically leave the luxury market open to the Swiss. And so by the 1890s, we see the Swiss producing hundreds of thousands of luxury watches, which are highly profitable for them. Meanwhile, Waltham is producing less than 300 luxury watches in a year. And so uh, there's actually this really cool article I came across um, from 1892, and it's a page two of the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. So imagine page two of a prominent newspaper. And in there, it literally lists over 200 individuals from Brooklyn that are, you know, the local senator, the mayor, the uh, reverend, the professors. And it literally lists what watches all those people have. And if you total those up, they're almost all Swiss watches. So you kind of see this movement away. Like in 1876, it was cool to have the American Waltham watch. By the 1890s, 
an American would open the newspaper and see all these prominent people that they respect only want Swiss watches. Um, and it's like this really cool kind of like before and after you're able to see this movement back towards the luxury Swiss watches. Was this like the American car industry where they had everything going for them and then they just fumbled over their own feet for a bunch of dumb and kind of looking in retrospect avoidable reasons? Yeah, so Waltham's probably biggest point of failure is in their efforts to kind of win this like commoditized market of low-cost watches. They kind of reach the point where they have to stop innovating. So they, in 1883, they bring in kind of what we call a new CEO, and this guy puts in policies that kind of cut the innovation budget. And he tells Waltham, or he tells the employees to start focusing on products that'll sell, stop trying to like invent the next, you know, great watch invention. And so they continue to just focus on producing and not really on inventing. Um, and we really see that trickle through in their ability to produce watches cheaply or process innovation, managerial innovation. And there's actually this really cool before and after. So David gives us a great snapshot into what Waltham's operational picture looks like. And then there's this 1921 Harvard Business School study of Waltham Watch Company, where they basically talk about how Waltham is the slow adopter of great of latest managerial trends. They don't know how to do anything with time costing their parts. And all this runs contrary to what they had actually figured out how to do back in 1876. So we see this company that has completely eroded all of its prior um, advantages it had in this effort to like cut costs. Interesting. And kind of the iconic folly is Waltham defies the, the wristwatch and doesn't adopt wristwatches until long after the Swiss already owned the market. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Was that uh, a perspective that was shared by the other American watch brands? Because as we mentioned, there was Elgin um, and, and, of course, Hamilton, and there was other American watch companies, uh, you know, Bolova. Uh, did they all make these mistakes, or was Waltham um, especially susceptible? And, you know, what did the Swiss think of the other ones? They obviously had this big focus on Waltham for a while. It's a big part of the story. Uh, but what was the relationship like uh, or the observation uh, between the other American watch companies and, and the Swiss? Yeah, so Waltham is kind of, you can think of Waltham as like the big tech company that everybody came from. So all these employees like come from Waltham and go to the other places. In fact, Elgin, when it was started, they recruited seven of Waltham's key employees. So it's like the cool tech company that everybody worked from or came from. But we see that Waltham is kind of the one leading the market and all of the other competition is really following whatever Waltham does. The problem that you really see in this era with the American companies and the wristwatch phenomena that takes hold right around 1900, 1890-ish, is all these American companies have invested heavily, just like Waltham, in automated production. So by 1890, almost all of Waltham's production is what we'd consider like fully automated now. Um, but they've invested so much in these giant factories that when it's time to actually make the move to a new product like the wristwatch, they can't afford to do it. They can't afford to retool their factories, buy new machines. And we kind of see this common theme where the Swiss are the first ones to jump on this wristwatch phenomena and they fully embrace it. In fact, Rolex, when they're founded, they fully commit to the wristwatch. Meanwhile, the American companies, almost in their entirety, are slow adopters of this wristwatch phenomena. We don't really see it until the 1920s. So I'd say Waltham is more or less a representative of what we see in much of the American watch industry. So, so Waltham is an interesting business case example as a study um, of just a lot of people maybe getting complacent and wanting to change the company in the wrong way, um, but that others learn from those mistakes. And you said like a company like Rolex um, probably looked at their failures as inspiration to do things very differently. So there was value to it. Yeah. So I think the, I mean, we don't really see Waltham, I mean, probably the people at the time didn't really realize Waltham is on this terminal decline. Um, you can see it in their financials in hindsight. Uh, but I think the Swiss at the time knew they had to move to new products because Waltham more or less owned this cheap and reliable segment, um, which really leads the Swiss to be willing to adopt new things, uh, hence moving towards the wristwatch. Okay, so we have about 10 minutes left, and I know there's so much other parts of the book. What are some other areas that you think are compelling? I know that the origin of Swiss made 
as a term as part of this. You know, you, maybe you can talk about that. And what else do you think would be some good elements from the book? I mean, I want people to go and, and read the book. Um, but, you know, what, what do you think would be sure. other great uh, discussions? Yes, I think I'll, I'll hit up the origin of Swiss made. I know recently on a podcast you you asked about that. And um, we really see this kind of start with David. So David, in his report, he says, hey, we have to stop being responsible for these fraudulent watches or these watches that make claims that turn out to be not true. So he recommends that they both certify the reliability of gold markings and that they have to give a observatory certificate that basically is the origin of officially certified. And so between this reliability of the movement and the gold markings, we see that David gets this implemented. His boss is this guy named Ernst Francion. Um, and he is able, he also, he also works in the government and he's able to get this through. And so the government begins enforcing this. And in my research, I come across journal articles by the kind of the turn of the 19th century where they're already talking about, Hey, Hey, if you go to Switzerland, people want to buy them because their watches are reliable. They've made a, you know, they learned from their mistakes. Now a Swiss watch is the best watch you can buy. Uh, in fact, at the 1893 World's Fair, the Columbian Exhibition, and in fact, if you've ever read the book, The Devil in the White City, it takes place at that World's Fair. Um, we see that the judges there talk about Swiss watches. They say, hey, it's somewhat of a novelty to see a watch selling at a moderate price accompanied by an observatory certificate. But here we have them in abundance. All, this, all the Swiss watches are now doing this. So that kind of becomes this origin of like, it, it's actually good to have a Swiss made watch. Um, and so I would say that that is where we kind of get the true root of being Swiss made is actually a sign of prominence and not a sign of cheapness. Uh, and we kind of see that happening in the 1880s and 1890s. I was just wondering how Swiss made may have evolved over time because I heard someone tell me an interesting story about German made or made in Germany, which was less about quality, more as a warning. Uh, the story was that the British uh, were, get, were getting sick of uh, poorly made things from Germany, so they forced things made in Germany to say made in Germany so that they would know, <laughs> watch out for this thing. Um, but then that turned into something where the Germans became embarrassed by it, so it really stepped everything up, and that was how made in Germany became a proud thing. It seems like it was a very different approach with Swiss made, but of course it's had to have shifted over time. Yeah, and I, I hadn't heard that that uh, part about Germany. That's that's interesting. Um, as far as like the kind of when we see them being put on dials, I, I couldn't tell you exactly when we see Swiss made really starting to appear. Um, but this idea of, I would say, kind of the precursors of that are officially certified, which obviously we still see that on many watches. Uh, and then this idea of gold barkings that really is kind of the precursor to this idea that Swiss made even means anything. So what do you think? Do you think Swiss made has the gravitas behind it? Is it marketed things self-surfing? Like Swiss made is a is a big deal. Um, I think it should be a bigger deal these days. I don't know that Switzerland markets it very well, but you know, you're you're a business student. How well are they doing? Yeah, so I actually cite a study in there, I think from 2016, where it talks about they did a study of people's willingness to pay for watches and just people are willing to pay 50% more for a watch just bearing those words Swiss made. So obviously it means something. I think probably the biggest danger is, um, you know, what, what does the term Swiss made mean? You know, what is the requirement to be called Swiss made? And while that the term continues to garner respect, the underlying requirements continue to shift or at least consider, or they consider changing them. And so I'd say that's probably like the biggest watch out is just being able to maintain whatever quality is associated with that to continue to get people to pay 50% more. What do you think they're doing right? You know, what is it they're communicating? What do others not do? Because these days, no matter where your goods are made, it's going to say made here for the most part. Not everybody, every country benefits from that. What, what does Switzerland do? I mean, it's more than just the watch industry, right? Or, or is it sure. basically just confined to the watch industry? And other than Swiss made chocolate, people are ambivalent. <laughs> Yes, I think, I mean, other products are probably outside my uh, area of expertise, but I, I think with regards to um, watches, the idea of Swiss made, making sure people both understand what it means, but continuing to back the quality. Um, I think also when it comes to individual brands, one of the things I actually found most ironic was 
David was pushing for this idea of, you know, what we would call kind of like the third party watch or the, the movements, the movement makers, uh, who then sell it to the final company who then manufactures it. But we kind of see the, the opposite trend right now where everybody wants to make in-house movements, uh, which kind of goes antithetical to what made them successful in the first place. Um, and there was a reason that David said to do it this way. He said, Hey, you know, kind of, if you're a great movement maker, focus on making movements and make them really, really well. And that was the, the David approach. Um, and so I'd say that there is, there's some wisdom in being able to focus on uh, comparative labor advantage and being able to do it well. And that's what made the system of the late 1880s successful and ultimately made Switzerland successful and the quality of their products successful. Now, did it ever become part of the story where the Americans um, realized this or recognized that there were, that, that the entire Swiss watch industry was a recipient of information that they didn't know was being disclosed. Like, I'm wondering if there was any repercussions or or response or Waltham had so many other problems, this never even became a thing. Yeah, so we never, we never know for sure. Um, the CEO in his annual reports, Waltham's CEO, in, starting in 1878, 79, and kind of into the early 1880s, makes lots of allusions to like, hey, you know, I'm not going to give you as much information as I did in my last report because for some reason, you know, information I'm writing manages to leak out. And so he gives all these indications that maybe he knew his information was leaking back to Switzerland. In fact, we know David maintained contacts. He he says in his report, he's still getting information. So we know at least as, as late as mid-1877, David's still getting information. Um, and so we have indications that Waltham at least knew their information was getting out. They didn't necessarily know who was getting it or, or where it went to. Um, but that kind of becomes an interesting part of the story. So should should Jacques David be looked at as a villain or a hero? Uh, is it depending on the perspective? You know, because in a sense, you can look at it as the fact that the American watch industry, or at least Walton, was going to go down anyways. And this information at some point or another would have been made aware to the Swiss, like that people were industrializing manufacturing wasn't exactly a, <laughs> an unknown thing. You know, how pivotal was this in terms of certain downfalls and certain gains? Or was it just sort of a matter of time that this all would have happened? Or do we not know? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I mean the short of the answer is we don't know. Um, I, I like to think of David as most similar to kind of Francis Cabot Lowell and the American textile industry. Uh, obviously, we look out upon Lowell as, as a genius. He creates the, the Waltham Lowell system and leads to the Lowell Mills. I think David has a similar element where he's able to take this information. And I kind of really draw out this idea in the book that it's not that David so much got the information. Lots of people acquire information. It's that they don't know what to do with it. But I think, you know, when David comes back, the Swiss see the information he's got is so valuable that they actually, the uh, the society that originally commissioned him creates this committee in 1877 whose charge is to gather information on international competitors. And then they actually formalize this into a, a business intelligence unit in 1877. So the, the Swiss watchmakers see this information as really valuable. Uh, but I, I um, like to kind of characterize when you look at David you can really only ask yourself the counterfactual of what would have happened if David never visited Waltham, he never acquired this information, he never wrote the report, and he never contributed his insights and leadership. Um, I think it's safe to say that there's a good chance that the Swiss watch industry would have, you know, faded. And in fact, Faye Perret in this quote, he says, coming back in 1876, he goes, you know, we've believed ourselves to be masters of the situation when really we've been on a volcano. Had the centennial exhibition happened five years later, we would have been beaten and never known where the blow came from. So clearly they see this as like, oh my gosh, like we just dodged a bullet and we have this information. So now let's do something. So if you look at the counterfactual, had they never got this information, never had David, never had his leadership, never had his ability to process that information, uh, I think it's very probable that today we probably wouldn't know much of the Swiss watch industry today as they would have faded much like the English and the French and the Germans uh, had done before them. Uh, and in fact, there is modern research uh, that was done by um, some economists on East and West Germany that shows that the effects of industrial espionage are very rarely tangible 
at the time, but you can see the effects over time because it forces these strategic decisions that cause companies and industries to go on different trajectories. And that's kind of exactly what we see happen as a result of this, what David's able to do is we see this divergence between Waltham and the Swiss that put them on different trajectories from which, you know, defines the next 150 years of the industry. Perfect way to end. Everyone, uh, the book is Disrupting Time, Industrial Combat, Espionage, and the Downfall of a Great American Company. The author is Mr. Aaron Stark. Um, Aaron, where should people learn more about this? Where else do you want to plug? Yeah, so you can you can find the book in paperback, hardcover, and Kindle on Amazon. And in about a month, there will be a version on Audible coming out. And I hope you check it out. Aaron, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com.